Hello, my name is Icy Liu. You're listening to Ungrafted, a podcast about wine, humanity, and the planet. Today, I speak with Carlton McCoy, Master Sommelier from the Roots Fund and Demine Estates, about Black representation in the wine industry. Carlton grew up in Southeast Washington D.C., where wine was not part of his family or culture. After winning the CCAP Careers Through Culinary Arts Program cooking contest, he earned a full scholarship to the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York, which kickstarted his wine career. Carlton became a master sommelier when he was only 28 years old, and was the second African American to earn the title. To date, there are only three Black master sommeliers out of 269. He was the wine director at the Little Nell in Aspen. Before becoming president and CEO of Height Cellar and Demine Estates, Carlton and I discuss the situation of Black wine professionals and the importance of mentorship. We also chat about the Roots Fund, which provides wine education, mentorship, and job opportunities for people of color. Thank you, Carlton, for being with us today. Actually, I have never met you in person, but I actually want to thank you from the bottom of my heart because. I don't know if you remember, but I reached out to you when I and a couple of other people started this wine auction to benefit the ACLU of Texas to fight voter suppression. I reached out to you about Heights, and you said thank you immediately, and even for this podcast too. So I really want to just thank you first, giving me and other people and these platforms an opportunity for just people you don't even know. I thank you for taking. Perhaps more interest in the politics of our country than some of the citizens. To be very honest with you, I also will say I, I realized actually about a week ago that I, I purchased a lot, which I, I it got me really excited. There was a, a tattoo artist in New York City that had offered off like a couple hours of tattoo and a couple bottles of wine, which gave me a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. When I was like, I, that may be the first place I I fly is to go get a tattoo. And just hang out with this guy and drink a couple bottles of wine. It sounded like the most fantastic evening. <laughs> you know what tattoo you're gonna get? You know what? I, I have a lot of tattoos, and typically, I always plan them out. And I think I'm at the point in my life where, I, I, for the first time ever, I would like to just go in and not, and maybe just have a bottle of wine and talk about it with a guy and just let him have at it. Not pre-plan it, perhaps. No, I think I think look, you know, we've done enough of that in the last year and a half. So maybe just throw a little caution to the wind and, and see what comes out. At the very least, I'll have a great story and a, a probably a big hangover. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, today I want to talk about you know opportunities for Black wine professionals, about your background, and also the Roots Fund. Yeah. And before we do all of that, maybe you could tell us about your background and focusing on times in your life when organizations or certain individuals gave you opportunities in your career. Yeah. Sure. You know, I, I'd say, as far as my career is concerned, and the first organization that really played a big role in that would be CCAP, and it's a program that was started by Richard Grosman, short, little gray-haired Jewish guy, incredibly passionate, infectious energy. You know, he took a part of his inheritance and invested in this nonprofit, where he would go into the, the inner city and, and teach impoverished kids. Classic French cuisine. Who would have thought? You know, <laughs> who would think that? You know, that was a good thing to do. But he was part of this movement with Julia Child and so forth. And he went around teaching with the the Cordon Bleu in, in the seventies and just really, really passionate. And uh, he was friends with Jacques Pepin and like that whole circle of guys. 
so this this program came into my high school, a uh, high school that you know just it wasn't a place that was known for offering opportunity or even education for that fact. It's like a daycare for large children. That's what those public schools are, unfortunately. I was in a, a cooking class. I had to take an elective to graduate from high school. So I chose cooking because I grew up cooking with my grandmother. I knew how to cook. So I said, well, I can, I can get through this one pretty easily. <laughs> and I met this guy named Ian Barkley, and he sort of took me under his wing and trained me for these cooking competitions. And what CCAP does is they take all these kids in the city and they give everyone the same recipes. And you got to go into this commercial kitchen, you compete for scholarships cooking these recipes and they judge you by your execution. And I won a scholarship to the CIA, a full ride in New York, in Hyde Park. So they, that absolutely changed the trajectory of not just my career, but my life and put me on a pretty incredible path, started that journey, which is exceptional. And then I'd say the next organization was the Quartermaster Sommeliers. You know, I, I didn't grow up in a place where I ever interacted with wine, didn't know anything about it culturally, economically, there's no access. And I was told by a maitre d' as I expressed an interest in moving into management was that he says, great, you're an incredible server. You know, your numbers are through the roof. He goes, but your wine, your wine sales are horrible. And he says, you know, at one point you have to realize you can only sell a guy one steak, right? And what's the most expensive steak on the menu is a hundred bucks. But you can sell it to that same guy, sell him a steak. You can sell him a $5,000 bottle of wine. I'd never seen a $5,000 bottle of wine in my life. I didn't know there was a bottle of wine that could be $5,000. So he says, but to to get that, you got to learn. You got to study wine. I said, how do you study wine? You drink wine. I didn't understand the concept really. And he says, look, you know, I'll connect you with Andy, our our, our wine director. He'll put you in a path. And Andy Myers, who to this day, I 100% solely credit with me having a career in the wine industry. He sat me down and says, hey, look. You know, he's sort of one of these old school restaurant guys, you know, doesn't talk to you until you've been there for six months, you know, because he goes, look, we turn over so many people. Like if you're not here for six months, I don't even want to know your name. He wouldn't even remember your name, which I, I think is just brilliant. He's still one of my best friends in the world and just a really incredible guy. And he says, look, here are five books that are reference books for wine. So I went and I started reading them and I read all the books. I mean, it's, this is the, the, the wine encyclopedia, Sotheby's, Hugh Johnson's and, and Jensen Robinson's, the, the, the wine atlas. I read through all of them. I came back and said, Andy, I read all those books. What now? He goes, Carlson, those are like reference books. You don't read them. He's like, you read those? I'm like, yeah, I read them. I was very intrigued by it because it, what it did was it gave me the opportunity to see into a world that I had never seen before. At that point, I had only left the country once before my entire life. And he says, well, look, you obviously, you, you like to study, you know, he says, which is odd for people who are interested in wine. He's simply just people who hang out and drink. He says, this is a program called the Quartermaster Sommeliers. And maybe it's for you, maybe it's not. He's like, I'm doing it. And maybe it'll give you a little direction as to what you can do. So he sort of put me on the path. And through that, the organization really, what it did was it just gave me some direction, right? Like as far as like subjects that I should be studying and things like that. And in that in DC, we had a little community, people who would study together, taste wine together, sort of drive each other. We didn't have any master sommeliers in DC. I think there was three advanced level sommeliers at the time, which is a lot. But no one had even taken the master's. And we all sort of worked together to study together. And that had a big impact on my life, obviously. And then when I moved out to Aspen, one organization, it had nothing to do with much with my career, but something that just sort of, once I passed the master's summary exam, you have a lot more time on your hands. And I became a part of the buddy program in Aspen, which is like the big brother, big sister program. And I was for a year, I was this kid's big brother. And what it did was it reminded me how much of a cave I was in for so long studying, oblivious to 
what was going on in the world. And his mom was from, was Eastern European immigrant and he was first generation and single parent. And I got to sort of help this kid because I was in a similar situation, gain confidence. I'd ski with him. He was a much better skier than I was, but it started to, I guess, put my mindset more into what I could contribute. And it, it didn't really come to fruition until a little more recently. It sort of planted the seed given my life experience and what I've been able to, to overcome and, and push through, it gave me a lot of empathy for people who are in, in similar situations as I understand it. I mean, for people who are, you know, trying to overcome that, but those are probably the organizations that probably had the biggest impact on me. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned Andy Myers as a mentor. Are there other mentors in your life? And why do you think these mentors do what they do? I think that people who excel at things want to help people who they see, you know, maybe uh are committed you know most people that i would call mentors are people who i would typically say are very busy in their lives and he was very busy when i first met him so you don't have a lot of time to spend on people who aren't committed and that's i guess maybe his reasoning for not memorizing names or caring much about employees until they've been there for a while so when they see someone that they feel is ready to, to put the work in and commit to it i would imagine i never actually asked him that to be honest with you but i'm guessing it's because someone had done it for him and he understood the value of it and it's sort of this carry forward mentality he had a big impact on me. Before then, you know, I worked at Per Se in New York, very prim, proper, very structured environment. I'd never seen anyone like Andy become a wine director of a, I mean, that was, we had the best wine list in, in DC outside of Citronelle at the time. And Andy was a death metal drummer. He used to be a, a bouncer at the 930 Club. He's a punk rock kid initially. And his entire body was covered in tattoos. And he would go around, you know, with like Slayer t-shirts. And he, I mean, he was sort of you know, for all extensive persons, one of these sort of like outcasts kind of people, you know, and not the kind of person you associate with being a wine director or going to be a master sommelier. So it planted a psychological seed into me that I could do it as well, because, you know, being raised, mixed race and, and impoverished, you are a bit of a social outcast and you're not accepted into the sort of mainstream of culture for a number of reasons. So it was like, well, if he could do it, I can do it. And he really supported me in that. And he was from the DC area, so he knew where I was from. So he understood what I had overcome and was still working through. And that really psychologically meant a lot to me. Also, he had confidence in me. And I never asked him why, but he was like, yeah, you can do this. That was very powerful for me, for someone like that to tell me I could do it. And I believed him. <laughs> so I did it. You know, it was like, it was that, that simple. He's like, no, no, you can really do this. And I was like, okay. Like, sometimes it's as simple as that. Like telling someone like, hey, you can do this. If you know they're driven. And then you believe in them, you sort of like, they trust you. <laughs> they go, yeah, if that person thinks I can do it, perhaps I could do it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, you often underestimate what you're capable of. Yeah, but also you sort of trust that person. You're like, look, they're already doing this thing. If they think I can do it, then obviously I, they must be right. <laughs> you <know? laughs> like you're young. I was 22, I think at the time, 23, maybe. You blindly just sort of believe them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've never met Andy, but it sounds like he sounds like a really cool guy. <laughs> He's an incredible guy. Yeah. Now, I mean, if we could just fast track from then to now, you know, the situation with Black Wine Professionals, maybe just start from the beginning. I know that when you started, you know, your culinary career and now your wine career, your grandma gave you some advice. Do you think your grandma would give you the same advice in terms of looks, for example, that she would give you now or if you would give another a fellow black person who's looking to get into the wine or food industry? You know, I read the question you sent and I, I, I was thinking about it this morning when I was working out. If, if there's a lesson, and let me tell you something, this last year has taught me a lot of lessons, all of us. 
which is a beautiful thing. Growth is a beautiful thing, even if it's hard. As I started learning to think about things a little bit more before I, before I answer. Why? Because there's the impulse, but then there's the stop and think about it. Now, I read the question. I was very happy you sent it because I thought about that. And I, I actually had not thought about that before. And what I would say is, unfortunately, yes, she would have to give me the same advice. Because while I feel that our country is inching towards the right direction, I am exposed to the whole country and not just the circle that I politically find myself in. So I know the reality of what this world is and it's not there yet. Mm-hmm. If it were there, the Roots Fund wouldn't need to exist. Yeah. And what's the advice that she gave you just for people who, or just in general? I grew up in, for lack of a better term, the ghetto in Washington, D.C. It was a very impoverished place, torn apart by the crack epidemic and by the U.S. government uh, supporting and allowing cocaine into the U.S. And also, you know, the federal government's very racist and very aggressive imprisonment of the Black community, you know, during that time. It destroyed our our families. It destroyed our communities. My family was very much uh, affected by it. Whole generation of people wiped out. Not criminals, just people who had drug addictions. And obviously now we know that the government has conveniently started to look at drug addiction as a humanitarian effort, a psychological issue. Back then, that wasn't looked that way. In those environments, we create our own culture. Part of that is the way we dress, where we speak, our music, our art, our food, hairstyle, everything. It's like being an immigrant in your own country, but it creates an absolutely beautiful and unique expression that is unlike anything in the world and has actually impacted the entire world. The Black American community is perhaps the most impactful civilization of people of our time in every way. And we know that. But unfortunately, it's not always accepted even in our own country because the association is with crime and poverty. So at the time when my grandmother was giving me this advice, I had just received a scholarship to go to the CIA. And I was the first person in my family to go to college. Many of my cousins and siblings haven't even graduated from high school. Graduating high school was a massive achievement in my, in my community. You know, she sat me down at the time I, I had, it's hard to believe now because the stress of the restaurant industry is <laughs> taking all my head away from me. I had just a beautiful head of hair. It's all gone. I had really long cornrows. I had long hair, like down to here. You know, we wore, I wore Timberland boots and I wore, you know, it's what we wore in DC. We had a very particular style in DC. And she sat me down and told me, says, look, you know, uh, and we spoke, DC has a very particular accent. And we use very particular slang words that's unique to the area. If you ever want to hear what it sounds like, listen to a rapper by the name of Wale. He's one of the only rappers that ever made it successfully out of D.C. But you'll notice his accent is very particular and he uses very unique slang. There's no different than when you go to Italy and you go to the Marque, the small villages, the fisherman has a very different dialect. Or if you're from Piemonte, you maybe don't understand the guy from the Marque. There's no difference in that. You know, over time, these different dialects show themselves. And she sat me down and she says, look, you need to cut your hair. You got to get you some new clothes. You got to change the way you talk because I never accept you like this. And I didn't really understand. I, there was my grandmother and God, right? To me, she was the highest of the high. We, I just did what she told me. And I, I didn't understand it, but I know it must have been very hurtful for her. But what she was, was she was aware. She was aware of the reality of the world. In that time, you sort of learn there's what you want the world to be, but there's also what the world is now. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, if your goal is to be financially successful. And I, I'll put that, 
classifier, they're financially successful. In America, you you know, at that time, less and less now, but definitely at that time, you had to what we call acclimate. What does that mean? Acclimation in America, it's actually not a great term. It's actually a very clear term. In America, as much as we love to talk about our, our country as a melting pot, a home of immigrants, we don't actually want people to be themselves, right? The moment they come here, we, we talk about how immigrants built the country and so forth and so on. And But ideally, in from the very beginning, the moment you land on the shores, they want you to lose everything about your, your identity. You're now American. But what does that even mean? No one actually knows what that actually means, but they want you to acclimate to whatever that look and, and sound is. So I had to acclimate. I mean, I literally had to, within months, change the way I spoke to be taken seriously. Even to this day, I've had conversations with colleagues who have been introduced to, to people I know, well, that guy, he couldn't be intelligent, listen to the way he talks. I'm like, yeah, that guy's worth $50 million. You're broke. And, you know, he's actually an ingenious business guy. He just speaks a different dialect of English than you do. Mm-hmm. There's this association with things that are from the African-American community, and they associate it with poverty and lack of intelligence. So that was the conversation we had. Unfortunately, she was right. Mm-hmm. And that it helped me. I'm also much lighter skinned than most because I'm half black, half white. My mother's family is a Jewish family from, from the Bronx in New York. So I could, what we call in the black community, I could pass, which means they knew that I wasn't white, but they didn't know what I was, right? You're, you're in that other phase, that, in, you know, that what do they call it, international minority. You could be any, anyone. You could be Puerto Rican or from Saudi Arabia. We don't know. We, we know you're not white, you know, but you're, you know, just you're light enough that you can pass. I'm very aware of how that that evolution to acclimate benefited me. And I was aware of it. I, you know, looking back, I obviously I, I wish I didn't have to do it. But you know, it's part of my life. Looking back, I, I think now again, pushing forward today, I think she would have to say the same thing. Obviously, there's parts of our culture that are a little more accepted, but not fully, and definitely not in the executive world. It's changing a little bit. In, in some industries, it's moving a little faster. We saw a change in, obviously, the music industry, the fashion industry, definitely in the art industry. But we still are only just starting to see the very top of those industries be occupied by black and brown faces. Typically, it was always, you know, it was the, the creative guy, but he didn't own it, right? The Yeah, he's a great musician, but he didn't own the record label. Yeah. So there was no mailbox money. Now, you know, the community is becoming smarter and learning how to capitalize on our own culture. And ultimately, we want to create that for the wine industry. What that looks like, I don't know. We're still defining that. Yeah. Well, talking about the wine industry, we know in the U.S. around 12% of the population is Black. Do you know what the situation is like in the wine industry approximately? What representation looks like? It's so low that it's not even worth talking about. It's less, I mean, less than 5%. It's, it's a non-issue. But then also when you look at that, it doesn't get too detailed as to talk about what, what jobs they actually fill. Ultimately, if we want to catch up, and it is a bit of a game of catch up, you have to put people in a situation where they can own things. They can be entrepreneurial. Because just being employees indefinitely well, does not build wealth. We know that. And in America, which is 100% through and through, more rooted on capitalism, money than religion or anything else, you know, it's, it's, it's really about that. You know, you don't, you don't have a safety net unless you own something, right? So we look at it as, 
those positions that are being held are not necessarily positions of ownership. They're predominantly employees, which, which is, look, there's a start, right? You got to crawl before you walk. But I, you know, my goal is to get us up walking and running real fast. We don't want to walk. We don't want to crawl too long. You know, we spoke about this earlier in terms of vineyard ownership. There's also, you know, less than 1% of them uh, owners are black. Do you, are you aware of any programs, government or banks or anything that help black people own vineyards or farmland? I don't. Black community and agriculture in America has a, a very long and deep rooted and very complex history. Obviously, you know, I, I spoke to Dottie about this, who, you know, which is an absolute legend. I mean, I think she may be the first ever black American wine writer and she's still going strong and still incredibly impactful. A very wise woman. I love talking to her. You know, we talked about how difficult it is the, the concept of um, black Americans in agriculture. We built the agriculture of this country, all of it. We're, we're given nothing for it. And then when the country gave us said, okay, now you're free. You can earn it. And we did. And they took it again. Mm-hmm. So there's not a whole lot of black people that are interested in being in a field of any kind. Yeah. That said, I think that viticulture is a very different thing. You know, it's probably been the most fulfilling part of my, I, I call it a career change because it's almost like a different industry is being connected with vineyards. My goal for this year was to be able to spend more time in the vineyard, less in my office. I absolutely love being in the vineyard. And I, I feel that there's a great opportunity for the black community to be in the, the business of land ownership. It's ultimately the beginning and the end of the industry where all the money's made. It's the guys that don't do too well unless you have to have mass scale. But ultimately, the, the goal is land ownership. And I think there's a great opportunity there for the black community. And that's why I've pushed that even more so than the Somalia route. I think it's a better long-term result for our community in, in land ownership and farming. Yeah, well, obviously, you know, the issues are very complicated, but just touching on that point, you had mentioned that, you know, perhaps you wouldn't pursue the MS route had you known of the other paths. Well, what do you mean by that? And is it just like people who want, don't even know that one is a possible career? And yeah, look, you know, I, I'm a passionate guy. I was raised in a big black family. We were very outspoken people. But what I've tried to learn is that in my position, it has a little bit more implications than when I was sitting around the dinner table with my family. And when the whole thing came out with the court, what I didn't do is give myself a whole lot of opportunity to really think about it. It was, it had a bigger impact on me than I realized on a number of ways. I thought about the industry as a whole. I thought about the role that I knowingly and unknowingly played in all of it. And you sort of go like, you know, is that what you would have wanted to be a part of going back and looking back? You know, I was so deep into going towards this, achieving this thing that you, you become, I was blind to a lot of things in my life, frankly. And it was a very traumatic time in my life in general. I went through a lot of things personally. I was almost studying was a way for me to escape a lot of things. But what the court did was gave me an enormous amount of direction and, and gave me a bit of a path. You know, the court doesn't do anything for you. You got to do it yourself, right? You just show up to test. There's so many things wrong with that organization. A lot of things that they've been made aware of and more they'll discover as years go along. But me as a person, it doesn't really align with the way I approach wine and the way I approach people and humans in general. And I don't know if that's just how I've evolved in my life or, you know, I don't know back then, I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to say things in hindsight, 
but I don't look at wine the same way. And I think that Nate Reddy sort of, he didn't allude to it. He very bluntly said it is when he decided to leave the court. And I didn't disagree with him because my connection with what I do in wine now is very different than the way I studied wine there, but I also wouldn't be here without that. So it's, it's, yeah. how do you damn the path? Even if the path was tumultuous, that got you to this incredible place. And ultimately I think that when I sort of told my story and my perspective on the court, which the one part I absolutely stand behind is that I felt that, you know, I had never, before I went to college, I'd never had access to real education. The first time I had structured educational, like, you know, academia, I was thrilled. So you get blinded by the little things, you know, but what it was, it was a place where I was literally, I, I could prove that I was as smart as the rich kids, mm-hmm. you know, and I never had that before. And that to me was when I passed the master's, I, I, I didn't actually, and, and I don't want to sound pompous here. It wasn't really about passing the master's. It was almost, I had to prove to myself and four other people that a little kid from the ghetto could be as smart as the rich kid who went to the Ivy League school or smarter. That was really important for me and for representation. Now, this is not the path for everyone. And I think where people go wrong is it's sort of like if you don't go through the court, if you don't pass the master's only exam, then it's like nothing. And I think that is absolutely absurd. This industry to me is so beautiful and it's so diverse. Both the, the greatest and the worst people in the world that I've met have been in the wine industry. But there's so many opportunities for people depending on what their goals are for themselves and what their goals are for how they want to interact with wine, that the court is one very small, I would say insignificant path. And I don't say that to ever diminish the value of the organization. It's because it's a very small group of people. Mm -hmm. The the wine industry is such a vast industry that is all encompassing that you don't have to go down that path. But my point was that I wanted I thought it would, it, and I still feel that it is worth to take an organization like that, force their hand to be the organization that we want it to be and make it ours the way it needs to be so that those people of color, women who want to go down that path, have an organization that serves their needs and not the organization's needs. Mm-hmm. And it is to go in that direction in a very abrupt way. Now, they decide not to. And I say they because I'm not on the board. Frankly, I'll be very honest with you. I didn't have time to be on the board. It would have been very wrong for me to have a performative effort to run for the board and not be present. I did not want to do that. I have too much respect for the people who need change in that organization to be performative in that way. But I say they because I don't have, I'm not in a position to make any direct change. I'm on a diversity committee that suggests change. Mm -hmm. And all suggestions have been taken so far frankly, that I have suggested. And I've tried to be very thoughtful and intentional in my suggestions. But if they decide not to do that, then I have no problem with the organization not existing. Because my what I realize is that my commitment is not to the organization or even to my certification. What I really want to do is I want Americans in general to embrace wine as a beverage and to understand the joy of what this industry can bring into their lives, the way it's brought into mine. And being a part of wineries in overseeing and farming land and working with the people that I've been able to work with have fulfilled my life. And I've just tried to create more opportunities for people within that, that world to thrive. 
To me, that's what I'm far more interested in. So going back, what I right now in my current mindset would have gone back and gone to the court, I would not have. I'd probably be in overall somewhere pruning vines. Mm -hmm. Like you sort of are now, but not really. Do Don't prune vines. I no. managed to prune vines. <laughs> no, get that straight. I, I always try to clarify because I've worked for people who have taken credit for my work and I absolutely detest it. Mm -hmm. I do not farm. I don't prune vines. I work with people who do. I'm in all the meetings where we talk about it. I walk through the vines where we talk about what we're doing. It has given me so much respect for every glass of wine I've had. For sure. So you think about it through a completely different lens. I don't make wine, but I employ, I think, some of the most exciting winemakers in America. And I learned something new and I walk away just thrilled, you know, tickle pink every time we walk out of a meeting with them, excited for the work they'll do. I don't even sell wine, but we work for, we have some incredible people on our team that do that. But when I look at the injury in itself and I go back and I see if, if all this all went away, my past, I would go through probably the viticulture and winemaking part of the business. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk about the Roots Fund. Who started it and what are you guys doing? Yeah. So the Roots Fund, it actually, true stories, it started with my post on Instagram. I'm not very active on social media. Sporadically, I go through points in my life where I'm inspired by something. I'll post something, and then I won't post something for months. When the issues with with race issues that were not just and they were it was focused on the court, but ideally it, it was really a, a call to the industry, mm -hmm. but definitely the court because the court sits at the top of the pyramid for the sommelier field. That is, was sort of called out for its lack of diversity in the organization obviously as being one of the few people of, of color in the organization, they go, so what do you think about this? <laughs> and, and they go like, it's like sort of just sitting there having a conversation, someone puts a mic in front of your face. You're like, and you have no time to respond. You're like, ah, you know, like, I don't know. And I, I, I didn't give myself a whole lot of time to think and I should have, and I still continue to. And like anything else, your opinions with more data evolve. But what I was really outspoken about is what I alluded to earlier. What I spoke about earlier was the, you know, certifications can be very important for people of color in the wine industry. Why? Because the international perception of people with darker skin is not in the inferiority of darker skin is not an American problem. It didn't start here. It started long before America was a country. It exists in Asian nations, right? You go around Japan, how many women do you see with umbrellas in the middle of the summer and cover themselves, whatever, because they don't want to look like they work in fields, Right. All over Asia, you see it all over Europe, it's everywhere. It's a toxic psychological issue that has existed for centuries. And it exists obviously very strongly in the wine industry and the perception of class and intelligence. So Richard, who, you know, I would say before that back and forth of post, I would call him a friend. I haven't spoken to him, but I'm guessing he wouldn't call me a friend at this point. <laughs> I still think he's a really intelligent, very brilliant man, but... What I disagree with him on, and I, one thing I do hate about social media is there's no context to anything. Mm -hmm. I wish I would have picked up the phone and talked to him, and I didn't do that. That was a mistake. But I was very passionate because I felt that what a position to be in to be able to walk away from being a master sommelier. Because when you're a handsome, chiseled jaw, white guy with a beautiful head of hair and a nice suit, people trust and they understand that, of course, he knows what he's talking about when he's selling me a bottle of wine. He doesn't know what it feels like to be dark skinned and from an impoverished neighborhood and be hushed away and asked for the real sommelier, right? That's an everyday thing that people of color have to deal with 
in the wine industry, whether you're in retail, whether you're a server, a sommelier, or even if you're not in the wine industry and you're at a you know, business meeting, you ask for the wine list, they look at you funny, right? There, there's a psychological stigma that exists in our society still about the inferiority of, of people of color and the lack of intelligence or class. So that was my point with that. I felt that was a, what a position of luxury to be in, to not have to do that. Now you take that same person of color, you put a, a master sommelier pen on their lapel. People know what that means. And they look at you a little different, right? They trust you. It's, it's, you know, I, had a, I had a long conversation with my aunt. She was the first person in my very extended family. She's my great aunt, one of 14 children. She was the only one to go to college. I asked her about that. I'd never spoken to her about it. And I asked her, I said, what drove you to go to college? I mean, this is not an abnormal thing at that time. She says, Carlton, what I realized is that I felt that I was very smart, but a white person would never believe me unless I had a degree. Mm-hmm. And that really drove me to have that opinion. So I was really outspoken about that. When I had that post, Tahira Habibi sent me a message says, we need to talk. Mm-hmm. I literally had never met Tahira in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, okay. And I, I, we got on the phone and we talked about it. And I tried to explain her my perspective from, I posted about what I felt, but I really didn't have these sort of words to express the sort of emotions behind it, given my life experience. Pretty much I gave her that perspective that I, I also didn't feel that the court was for everyone. I knew it was an a incredibly flawed organization. It still is very flawed, much like our entire industry and society are worse than we probably even want to admit. But we said, okay, so what do we do about it? You know, I, I'm an action guy. I, I, I don't like sitting around complaining about things. If, if there's no plan to do and to fix it, then I don't want to talk about it. So we jumped in. We said, well, look, maybe we should do something. You know, she already had the Hughes Society, which was really creating a sort of social atmosphere for people of color to interact with wine in a place where, you know, they were comfortable with it. And, you know, I said, well, you know, I'd like to do something that's around the nonprofit space that, you know, focus on creating opportunities for black people and other people of color. And so we started developing that, but I knew that one, I didn't have the time to run it. And I knew that frankly, I'd never done a nonprofit. I don't know how to do it. It takes an enormous amount of work mm-hmm. to have it be successful. You can do it. You can sign up, you can get the paperwork, you can bring a consultant in, but someone's got to operate it. They got to raise funds. They've got to make sure the scholarships go around. They got to keep the relationships going. There's so much. And I had a friend by the name of Ikemi DuBose, and she was also a student that come from a CCAP scholarship program and went to Johnson and Wells and had consulted for some nonprofits. So I called her to get her advice on it and so forth and so on. And by the end of the call, I realized I was pretty much asking for her to come in with Tara and I to sort of figure out how to do it. And she agreed and she came in and she sort of just sort of like taking hold and getting it done. And then ultimately now, you know, Akimi is the executive director. She runs it. Tahir and I are on the board uh, as advisors and we're now building out our board as we speak and what we've been able to do in 10 months, I believe nine months is exceptional. You know, we've raised, I think over 400 grand and offer about 30 scholarships, you know, in, in a very short amount of time, you know, ultimately we look at sort of the three pillars of the roots fund is, is, is exposure and recruitment, understanding that because people of color have not been actively invited into the wine space, they're not really aware. And I'll see, we are not very aware of what the career paths are and how lucrative a business and industry it is. So we really know about the opportunities. You're not really aware of them, right? So just making people aware of what the paths are in the industry and then recruiting them for opportunities, educational opportunities. So whether it's, you know, going to a knowledge school, 
viticulture school, sommelier programs, study abroad programs, or whatever it may be, that we help fund those opportunities. And then lastly is job placement. You know, once we make sure they have the requirements to be employable, we help them get into the room. I absolutely do not believe in giving anyone a job. You have to earn it because people value things that they earn much more and they take more pride in it. And, you know, I think there was, while there was an enormous amount of positive that came from affirmative action, there was also some negatives. And what it did was it devalued people's legitimate credentials. Mm-hmm. It said, well, you only got the job because you were black and they need to check that box. I'd never want anyone to feel like that. I think it would be disrespectful to them. So what we do is we just help them get in the room. Once they get in the room, it's up to them to get the job. And then we offer mentorship because one thing that can be very difficult is taking a person of color, bringing them into a world where they're not familiar with the culture, perhaps. You know, I, I dealt with that when I went to the CIA. It was literally like being an immigrant into my own country. I didn't listen to the same music. We didn't eat the same food. You know, we didn't watch the same movies. Nothing. Like I didn't understand the culture at all. I remember the first time I heard the Beatles. I'd never heard them before in my life. And they were all looking at me like I was weird. It's, it's a really difficult environment to be in. So we mentor them in how to be in that environment, but be proud of who you are and hopefully make sure that their environments are safe. You know, we, we try to use our influence to make sure that we are putting them in companies that are going to respect them for who they are. We don't want any special treatment. That's also the worst thing that you can do, but we put them in a situation where they can be successful. And we try to mentor them through their careers. One of the things that I remember you mentioned when you were going through the CIA and afterwards you were looking for stages at some of the best restaurants in New York City and whatnot, you know, a lot of these stages are not paid and that obviously, you know, or at minimum wage. So it precludes a lot of people being able, even though they're very talented to have those positions. Is that the same case in wine or, or even for the Roots Fund, are these paid internships? That was a very traumatic time for me. As much energy as I spent becoming a master sommelier, I put that into studying classical French cuisine specifically. I walked around with a repertoire de la cuisine in my pocket. I, you know, I studied Auguste Escoffier like it was the Bible. I took it very seriously. And I would every weekend I would go down to New York City on the train on the Metro North, and I would work for free in kitchens very early in the morning to the last train. I'd be running for the last Metro North going back to, to Hyde Park. And I got to New York and I found out that pretty much these kitchens were filled with people from families that were upper middle class or more. And that this thing I had spent so much of my time studying doing that I couldn't afford to be a cook. <laughs> you know, and I also had a very unique family situation where I was helping to support my sister and her kids and it just didn't work. So I sort of, after all those years, were pushed into a different industry. You know, we ensure that that never happens. So I don't believe anyone works for free. Even if you're learning, you need to get paid full. So all of our, our interns get paid, all of them. There's no such thing as free, no free labor. Mm-hmm. And we try to put them in environments where, again, they don't get special treatment, but they're conducive to learning and nurturing and mentoring, where they're not just another number, you know. There's nothing against those types of companies. You know, they exist. But we, you know, we look at the environments and we make sure that they're run by people who, who care to mentor young people. and. Mm-hmm. And good experiencing that it's not a toxic environment to work in. I want to conclude this interview with maybe asking you now that you know you are the CEO of Heights and the Lawrence Estate has purchased new vineyards and you being in Napa, which is more of a conservative uh, region, what are some of the best ways to create change in your opinion, whether that be there or anywhere else? It depends on how do you define change? Whether it's opportunities for people of color or 
when you just want to change the status quo, whether it be more diverse, when people are not maybe used to it, or maybe that's not the first thing they think about? I, I think you got to, at some point, and it's, it's what I've had a hard lesson on in the last year in a number of ways in my life is trying to be a good example and the responsibility that means when you're in a certain position. And for me, I would never, ever hire someone because they are of a certain gender or race. Or, but because of where I come from, I also don't have the preconceived notions about people or prejudice behind people that I discount them because of it. So if you look at our company already the way it stands, and we're, you know I'm really only a year and a half into this thing, over half of our winemakers are all female. And we have, you know, people of color who are state directors and work in our cellars and, you know, work in our tasting rooms and things like that. And you have to normalize it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to be cynical, but I don't want to give someone an award for hiring someone who's of color. <laughs> you know, like, I think you have to normalize it and be an example. Like, you, you know, my grandmother used to say a, a man is judged by his works. And I think what she meant by that was, you know, people talk a lot but don't listen, watch what they do. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you just go packing every position with someone of color, just to try to fill a box again. I mean, that's not what this is about. Like, you know, give people a chance, understand that what your own culturally and society learn and imposed prejudice may be without you knowing about it. Just be honest with yourself. You don't have to go write an email about it, whatever. Just I mean, you're in the shower, you think about it. You know, when you see a name on a resume that sounds like a person who's black or Indian or whatever, what does that mean to you? What do you think? Be honest with yourself. But, you know, you got, you got to be an example, normalize it. Mm-hmm. That, that's important. You know, it's like, you don't have to think too hard, just do it. You're not going to change the whole world overnight. Also, you know, you have to be aware of that. That's not realistic, but I'm also not very patient in the sense that I only have one life. So I'm not going to waste it. If I can be a part of that change uh, in any way, I will. We have soon, you know, six wineries that we own and operate over 600 planted acres in the Napa Valley. You know, we have, the infrastructure to make an impact, but to do it authentically and not being performative. I don't like performative acts I, they, because they don't last, right? They're not very substantial. You know, we want to build this thing as something that's, that's real and you change things by changing them. You know, I think people, they spend so much time. I, I've been on so many stupid Zoom calls about, I was on one last week, you wouldn't believe this, this lady asked me afterwards, I had to, I guess, censor myself. She says, Carlton, please tell me, how do, you, how do you think we should go about marketing wine to people of color? And I was, maybe because it was too early in the morning, the coffee hadn't kicked in yet. And I told her it was an absolutely insulting question. And she said, why? And I said, I said how do you market wine to white people? She said, you work in a company with a marketing team of 40 people, best in class. The same thing they do to Margaret White, which do it for people of color. Like, this is a silly question. Like, why are we asking like this is so hard? You just do it. Mm-hmm. Don't, you know, that's how you change it. You just do it. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Carlton, for all that you do and for, you know, being so outspoken about your ideas and being an example, you know, for all of us in the wine industry. And I'll tell you, I'm no example for anybody. Don't <laughs> call me that. Like, I, I, like there's a, uh, you know, for everything you see is good, there's about 10 faults. Well, at least being true to who you are. I try to be, and that changes, right? We all change. we got to be easy on, on ourselves. we got to be easy on each other. You know, I think it's important when we look at this thing, it's tough ground for everybody. It's traumatic for everybody. It took me a while to realize that as well. 
how does the oppressed have empathy on the oppressor? Very difficult thing to do. And most people tell me I'm stupid. I was talking to my cousin about it. He laughed, but he sort of got it. Like, it's hard for you. It's hard for them as well, believe it or not. You don't want to have to think about that. Frankly, you shouldn't have to think about it. But I think about it because I think about all parties involved. I made a lot of mistakes in my life. I've done a lot of things I shouldn't do. But you grow and you move on. You learn and you try to play a bigger role than just making wine. There's a lot of wine made in the world. There's a lot of great wine made in the world. A lot of mediocre wine made in the world. But ultimately, if we can, within our industry, in the thing that we do, make a bigger impact on the world, greater than just producing a product, that's the, uh, the ultimate goal. It doesn't have to be as hard as we make it out to be. You know, if we can try to do it with trying to be kind to each other as humans that are all got our own problems and lead with empathy, I try to do that. It's really hard to do when you're busy. The world makes life very stressful for all of us. You remind yourself to do it. It's what you need, especially as a leader. It's, it's very humbling if you try to do it right. But our industry will only be better by allowing more people in. People of color have changed how we wear clothes, how we listen to music, how we eat food, how we perceive the world. And that's a good thing. If we can allow that to happen to the wine industry and allow that impact, I think it's going to be absolutely brilliant industry moving forward. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Carlton, for sharing your story. And I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate your work. This is, uh, I think it's a great platform. And I always uh, appreciate a good dialogue where we're not just talking about biodynamic farming and natural ferments. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's for the next interview. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments, suggestions for topics, or interviewees, please reach out on Instagram at Podcast or on our website at ungraftedpodcast.com.